Good morning. Hope you guys are doing well. Grab your Bibles and get them open to Matthew chapter 28. If there's not, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black one in the seat back near you. If you get that and open it up to page 886, you'll be right with us in Matthew chapter 28. Because once you'll be able to follow along, I want to thank uh, the praise team uh, for leading us. In fact, can you just join me in thanking them this morning for leading us in worship? Awesome set that really kind of hit all the themes that we're going to hit on today, and uh, we're grateful for that. And thank you for that you are here. If you're a guest, we're especially uh, grateful that you are here this morning. We know how hard it is and how awkward it is, how uncomfortable it is to try something new. Um, and so the fact that you took that risk today and are here, we are thankful for it. And um, if you haven't uh, stopped by our Connect desk on your way out, uh, we have a gift for you for coming. I want you to know just how much we appreciate uh, you um, gracing us with your presence this morning. And um, I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer as we launch out into our message today. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful uh, for the opportunity that we've, we have to gather um, as your church this morning. God, we have uh, to gather as your people to, to sing praises to you, to open your word, to, uh, to dig deep into it, to, and ultimately, God, to connect with you, to know you, to hear from you, and to respond to you. And so we pray that that's exactly what would happen, that, uh, that you would speak mildly through your word and through the witness of baptism right after. Uh, Lord, that you get the glory from everything that's going to happen over these coming moments, and may all of us leave here in a way that, that has been affected, that we are drawn closer to you. Lord, if there's anyone within the sound of my voice who's not yet believed in Jesus Christ, would today be their day of salvation? And we pray this in his powerful name. Amen. Well, I think a good job description is something that's highly underrated. Right? Because if you, if you don't have it, then you don't really know what you're to be doing. Because one of the most important factors in productivity is just simply clarity. Do I know what's being asked of me? Do I know what it is that I'm supposed to do? Because if I don't know that, then there's going to be a lot of time spent on trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do next. And so I found something pretty fun this week where uh, knowing I was going to be talking about this, I just Googled uh, worst job descriptions, right? And uh, I found a site that, that ranks what they consider to be the worst job descriptions that were ever posted. And some of them were misses, but there were a few that were pretty funny, and I want to share them with you. And the first one was a, a photo that somebody posted on the outside of their business. They just put it on their front door, and it just said, we are hiring, low pay, bad hours, jerk boss, apply inside, I'm wondering how many people actually took them up on that. I'm not thinking that many, right? And then they had a picture of a couple of them from uh, local newspapers that I think were typos. You know, at least I hope were. And the first one was from a McDonald's that said, management positions available, contact Tony, vacation, uniforms, meals, and possible salary. That last ingredient seems pretty key for a job, I would think, right? The other one that I decided I don't hope was a typo anymore, I hope this person was serious, uh, was a restaurant that posted a job list that said, waitress needed, must be 18 years old with 20 years experience. <laughs> I'm not a math major, but I don't know that that's possible, right? And this last one was my favorite, and it might, I doubt it would be all your favorites. It probably shouldn't be, but it just it speaks more to my character, right? It just hits my sense of humor because the pettiness level is at an all-time high. And this is what was posted at the front of a business. It said, wanted a part-time salesperson who won't quit after two months, who works hard and doesn't think she's doing me a favor by working here, who can take a joke and won't cry every day on the sales floor. Inquire within. That person needs a therapist more than they do a new employee, right? There's clearly some baggage with a former employee that they've got to work through. 
But a good, a good job description gives as a, a statement of purpose, right? It gives you clarity about what it is that you're to be doing. And you can use it, right, to check yourself from time to time, to understand what, what is my role and am I actually doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Which is why I'm excited today to start our new series. And I'll let you know, in September, we're going to be diving into our next book study. We're going to go through the Gospel of Mark. And we are unapologetically a Jesus church. And so I'm excited for uh, however long that book will take that we're going to hear directly from him. But I want to use the time in between uh, to remind ourselves of our job. To do a a self-evaluation against, right, a, a review. Because Jesus gave his church a job description. He gave us a mission to live for. He gave us a mission to serve and to pour ourselves out for as long as he gives us life on this earth. Because it is through his church that God is building his kingdom. His church is God's plan A for sharing the gospel. It's God's plan A for expanding his glory. It's God's plan A for reaching people. And God never has a plan B. At the end of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus gathers with his followers. This is after his death and resurrection. And and he comes near to them and he gives them marching orders right before he will ascend. And this passage has come to be known as the Great Commission. And in it, he tells them what his church and his followers are to be about. He tells them that what it is they're to do, which means that if you want to know what is most important to God, if you, if you really want to know what he wants you to do in this life that he's given you, if you really want to know what he's looking for out of us, then we don't need to look any further than the Great Commission. Because in the Great Commission, we're given our job description. And so we're going to spend the next several weeks doing a really deep dive into it. And I have really three main goals for this series. Now, the more I've thought about it, the more I've prayed about it. There's just three things I would love to see happen. And the first is simply this, that we would memorize it. I think scripture memorization is one of those really key things that we, uh, we should talk about more around here. And so one of the things we're going to do is we are going to say it out loud together every Sunday of this series. We're going to say the Great Commission out loud. Secondly, I want, the second goal is for us to simply understand it. To go beyond memorizing, to understand what is it exactly that we're being called to as disciples and followers of Jesus? How deep does this go? How, how uh, expansive is this? Are we really actually doing this? Because we can claim that we're doing it, but are we really doing it? And thirdly, once we've memorized it and we've understood it, the third goal should be obvious, that we would live it. So each week we're going to call you to live this out, and we're going to end each service in this series with a prayer of commissioning to send you out as his followers every week. Because since there is no plan B, there's nothing in this that is optional. We don't get a pass on any of this. In fact, today we're going to see why, because Jesus makes an incredibly powerful and important claim right at the start of the Great Commission. And so to honor God's word, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and instead of having one scripture reader today, we're going to have hundreds of scripture readers, and we're going to read this together out loud. And uh, Troy's going to put this on the screens for you, so you're not all reading different translations, okay? And we're going to read together Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, so please read with me starting now. Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thank you. You can have a seat. Now, this passage, right, it's a famous one, but I think it's one of the best examples in the Bible of 
of the dual simplicity and depth of God's word, right? Because it's, it's simple. It's pretty easy to see outright what, what it is that Jesus wants us to do. The instructions are clear, but it's also incredibly deep because there's so much going on here that we can peel off layer after layer after layer and still be mining deep truths. And so we're going to break down each part of this great commission. And today I want to start with that claim that Jesus makes at the very beginning. Look again at verse 18. When Jesus came near and said to them, all authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's not a small statement, okay? That is a major, bold, outright claim of authority. It's one I want us to grasp for. And the first thing that I want to point out to you this morning is that this is a rightful authority that was both earned and given, this is not a false claim of Jesus. This is, rightful. this is rightfully his authority, but he both earned it and it was given to him. And we're going to walk through how, how that happened. And so it's incredibly important uh, and helpful to know who Jesus is. And the Bible does not leave this in any kind of doubt or uncertainty or mystery. God reveals himself to us in his word. And one of the truths that we are told repeatedly is that God is one, but he eternally exists in three distinct persons. So God is one in essence and three in person. This is known as the doctrine of the Holy Trinity. And this idea that God is one in essence, one in nature, but three in persons is important because it shapes a lot about who God is and what it means when he says that God made us in his image. That he exists in eternal community, has, has huge impacts in the way he has designed us. And we see this language in Genesis 1 when God first makes man. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now you don't have to be advanced English students to see the language there, right? Though it is a singular God creating. It doesn't say, then the God said. It just says, then God said. He, though it's a singular God, he's using a plurality of language. He doesn't, it doesn't say, God said, let me make man in my image. No, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And the Bible reveals to us the three persons of this trinity, of the Godhead. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and, and the Bible makes clear distinctions between them. Okay, this goes way beyond three different ways of looking at God or three different manifestations, right? These are, these are three distinct persons of the trinity. In John chapter 3, we're told that God the Father sent God the Son into the world. In John 14, and later we see in Acts 2, we read that when God the Son ascends and returns to God the Father, God the Spirit is sent in the world. So you can see them doing different things in different places. In, in Mark, now we're in, early in the book, right, in chapter 1, we're going to see the baptism of Jesus. And on that day, you're going to see all three persons of the Godhead doing different things. Because God is one and exists in three persons. And Jesus Christ is God. He is God the Son. He was not created. He is not an angel. He wasn't just a good teacher. He's not even a high-ranking official from heaven or a prophet or anything like that. He is God. He's the eternal, creating, all-powerful, sovereign Lord of the universe. He's the Son and the Godhead. And the Bible does not leave this in mystery. John chapter 1 tells us about him. It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was Jesus, okay? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. There's not a single thing that was created that Jesus didn't create, right? So he is the eternal, creating, sovereign Lord of the universe. Here's what Colossians 1 says about him, that he is the image, right? So God the Son is the image of the invisible God the Father. 
He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him, just like John 1. It continues. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That sounds a whole lot like what he said, that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, you need to know something about me. I have a pretty high distaste for whenever Christians fall into sharp disagreement and disunity over minor theological matters. There are too many splits, there are too many debates, there are too many arguments over things that aren't clear and things that aren't crucial in the Scriptures. But this right here is exactly why theology and doctrine are incredibly important. Because there are movements and and even cults that claim to be Christian, and in their teaching, they de-elevate Jesus. They do not give him his rightful place and do it. And this is not new. Okay, this, is, this was happening all the way back when the New Testament was being written. And the warning in the scriptures is the same every single time, have absolutely nothing to do with those teachers. Because Jesus Christ is the Lord of all the universe. Hard period. There is no lesser role that we can ever assign to him. And when he says that all authority has been given to him, it is his rightful authority. It rightly belongs to him and no one else. And so if it's rightly his, why does he say it was given to him? If it's rightly his, why do I say it's earned? Well, this is because of the gospel and everything that Jesus did to make the gospel possible. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And and there's a word that we don't like. It's the word condescend. Because in our day and age, we almost only use this in the negative. And we use it like this, that someone's talking condescendingly to me. That means he's talking down to me. And then it always carries this negative connotation. But condescending just literally means this. It just means to come down to our level. And there's one example of this that is for our immense good. Because in the gospel, Jesus Christ condescended to us. But the creator, sovereign God of the universe came down to our level. Philippians 2 talks about this. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, who is God, right? Did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. You get what that passage is telling us, right? That Jesus, being God, didn't use that to his own gain or his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself, Philippians puts it, giving up some of his divine privileges and took on the likeness of humanity. He was fully God and fully man. He was actually born of a woman. He, came, he started as an infant. He humbled himself to that point, and then he continued to humble himself, being obedient to God the Father's plan of redemption, and that obedience led him all the way to the cross where he suffered excruciatingly in torment and died for the sins of the world, not for any he had committed. You see, though he had rightful authority, he condescended, he came down, he submitted himself wholly to the Father's will, to his own cost and his own detriment and his own suffering, and guess what happened because of that? Philippians 2 continues, that for this reason, because Jesus went down, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
that Jesus' condescension, his submission, his obedience honored God the Father. And because of that, he was exalted back to his rightful place. And the Bible indicates this exaltation began with his resurrection. Here's how Ephesians 1 puts it. That God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above, this is where Jesus sits, far above every rule and authority, above every power and dominion, above every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. As I'm showing you a lot of verses today to, point this, to prove this point to you, the Bible could not be clear about the reality of who Jesus is, that all authority in heaven and on earth are rightly his. And when he submitted to the Father's will for the good of mankind, he was exalted and that rightful authority was given back to him. And we can see this shift, we can see this change after the resurrection. There are people who lived with Jesus for three years. They traveled with him, followed him, and post-resurrection, they don't even recognize him at first, which tells you something's different. The best example of this probably in the Bible is of the Apostle John who traveled with Jesus. He was was one of his disciples, and he writes in his own gospel in the book of John that in John 13 at the Last Supper, John is so relaxed and so comfortable with Jesus that when they're at that table, he is actually leaning back against them. He's just chilling and hanging out. And yet later in the New Testament, Revelation 1, John sees the resurrected, fully glorified, exalted Jesus. And you know what he writes then? He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Make no mistake about it, church. Our resurrected Jesus is the king of all the universe. He is at the right hand of the Father, ruling with sovereign power. There is nothing outside of his scope or capabilities. And he is systematically bringing each of his enemies under his feet. And he reigns now, and he will reign forever. Because there is no authority higher than him. This is almost redundant and obvious at this stage, but it still needs to be said. Jesus claims all authority here, not some, all. Which means there is no other authority higher. That every other authority in our lives exists under the umbrella of the authority of Jesus, which means they should all act with borrowed authority, understanding they answer to him. Now, in God's design and order, right, he, he calls people to positions of authority in this life, in the home, in the marriage, in, in church, and government. There are people who are given positions of authority, but in each of those roles, those authorities need to answer to Jesus because they are to never lose sight of the fact that they too are under authority because there is no authority higher than that of Jesus Christ. There's no one whose voice should be louder in our lives than the voice of Jesus There's no one whose opinion should carry more weight for us than the opinion of Jesus Christ. There's no one that we should try to please more than we try to please Jesus. And there's no one who should be as honored or revered or feared more than we honor and revere and fear Jesus Christ. I remember a great example of this several years ago. I saw an interview uh, that, that CNN was interviewing a pastor by the name of Rick Warren. Most of you probably heard of him. And the interview was pretty combative. Right? They, they, weren't, they didn't bring him on to, to cheer him on, okay? And the line of question as it continued was basically this. He said, Pastor Rick, society has moved on. Right? It has progressed. It has advanced beyond all you Christians, right? Where homosexuality is now something that is fully embraced and accepted. And so why won't you, as a Christian pastor who claims that you love people, why won't you just join in with the flow? And Warren's answer was this. Because I'm far more concerned with what God thinks of me and my teaching than what the world thinks of me and my teaching which was just an incredibly wise answer. Highest authority in all of existence is Jesus Christ. We need to be far more concerned with what he thinks of our actions and our decisions and our words and our intentions in our lives than what anybody else thinks of them. 
because there is no authority higher. Lastly, though, I want you to see here that this is an authority that sins. See, Jesus' authority is not just one to fear, that we should, but it's also an authority that empowers, it's shared. I want you to see the structure here of the Great Commission that Jesus uses in Matthew 20. He starts by saying, all authority is mine. And then verse 19 starts with, okay, because of that, therefore you go. And I have this mission for you to live out. And it ends in verse 20 with this promise. And I'm with you always. That as you go and do all these things, the one who has all the authority, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Do you see what he's getting at there? you see why he structures that way? He's sending us as his followers out on his mission with his authority. He's, he's giving that to us. And it's not to be used for our own gain, but it's to be used for the success of the mission because we could never do this on our own. It'd be impossible. And we see this, this modeled for us all throughout the book of Acts. We see the apostles and disciples and the early Christians living and serving with the borrowed authority of Jesus where they move and go and preach and baptize and reach and suffer and serve and give and sacrifice and even die. And they do it all in the name and authority of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, the crowd is struck to the heart, the Bible says, and they ask Peter what to do. And what does he say? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts chapter 3, they see the man who's been crippled for more than 40 years, and they say, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Acts 4, before the Sanhedrin, if we're being called to an account as to how this wonderful thing happened to this man, let it be known, it is by the name of Jesus Christ that this man was healed. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned and he cries out and he he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Acts 9, Saul is converted and he begins immediately going to synagogues and proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Every success they had, every soul that was reached, every church that was planted, every trial they endured, every time they suffered well, everything they ever accomplished was all by the power and authority of Jesus. Because when he sends out his church on mission, he does not send us out alone. He sends us with his authority, with his power working through us. It enables us, it equips us, it uses us. And yes, he even overrides us when necessary because it's his kingdom being built, not ours. Now, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ. This is not a small thing. This is a huge deal. And so how should we respond? And the first way should be obvious, but we should just give Jesus his rightful place. Now, don't misunderstand me when I say that. His place in the universe is secure. He is Lord of all. There's nothing that you and I could ever do to change that. But despite that, in in Mark chapter 8, Jesus comes to his disciples and he asks them two questions. The first one, he says, who who are others saying that I am? And he looks at them directly and he says, who do you say that I am? And this wasn't some insecure, needy question. Jesus wasn't looking to be praised or puffed up. He knew who he was. It's just that he knew something about us, too, that what we believe about him is the most important thing about us. Jesus Christ is king of all the universe, but is he king of your heart? Have you given him the rightful, earned, deserved place of king of your life? This is what he talks about in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. Nobody can do it. Since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve both, master, cannot serve both God and money. And I would add to that, since you can't serve two masters, you can't serve both God and anything. Right? So you can say, like, Jesus is my king, but over here I'm kind of running the show, and, and I have two kings. And, and Jesus is like, no, no, no. At some point they'll come to head, and you'll choose one. Right? There is one master. 
There is one Lord. There is one king that overrides all other voices. There's one throne in your heart. The question is, who's sitting on it? Because only Jesus Christ deserves that seat. And you start first by recognizing your need for him, by seeing that you are indeed a sinner that owes God a debt for your sins, a tremendous debt, and understand that if those sins are not paid for, Right? Then you're going to spend an eternity in hell. And so if you, the Bible says you believe upon Jesus, the God of everything who came down, who condescended and took our form and humbled himself to the point of death on the cross to pay our price. If you truly trust and believe in him, God, the Bible says that you will be saved. You'll be forgiven of your sins and granted eternal life. First, you believe in him as Savior because you desperately need saving. But then you recognize him as your Lord. And we're going to see four baptisms today and more next week. And I, I love those days because it's that first act of obedience for a new follower of Jesus. Where they are declaring twofold, two, two different things. Number one, that Jesus Christ has saved me. I want to be identified with him. And number two, he is my king because he told me to do this. I'm going to do it. And so is Jesus your king? Do you obey him over everything else? Do you run your decisions and your priorities through this word? Is your worldview shaped by his truth or more by culture? Here's the number one question. When your feelings and desires don't match his commands, who wins that battle? When what you want to do doesn't match with what he's revealed in this word, who wins? All authority is his. Give him his rightful place. And when you do that, you'll start to live for what Jesus tells you to live for. There's an obvious truth that we need to remind ourselves of every day, every hour, every minute, and it's this, that life simply isn't about you. Your faith simply isn't about you. Your church experience isn't about you. Your service to Jesus isn't about you. Your family isn't about you. There's nothing in your life that's about you. He makes it abundantly clear here, but we so often forget because without thinking, without acting, without any kind of intentionality, we will just shift down into operating as if we are the center of the universe. We would declare a room as hot or cold, too hot or too cold, based on what we feel, regardless of what anybody else thinks. We will say that music is too quiet or too loud, based on what we feel, regardless of what anybody else thinks. We will say that lights are too bright or too dim. Have you ever noticed that the car in front of you is always driving too slow, and the car behind you is always driving too fast, and you're the only one who's figured out the ideal speed? That's the thinking that you're the center of the universe. If life was a movie, we are nothing more than an extra that appears in the background for a second, and yet we constantly carry ourselves like we're the star. God is the star. Life is about him and his kingdom and his mission. And what he tells us here in his great commission to us is that people matter most. They're not scenery in the background of your life. They're souls. God has ordained that their path will cross yours. They do not exist to serve you. They don't exist to meet your needs or your expectations or demands. They don't exist to make your life more comfortable. You exist to serve them and reach them and point them to Jesus Christ. Because there's an eternal kingdom that's being built that is far greater and far better than everything that you will ever see and experience here, and it will outlast everything you've ever seen or experienced here. And not only are we invited to that, the one with all authority in heaven and on earth commands us to be a part of that right here. And so we can join Jesus in what he's doing. And we can be a part of something bigger than we could ever dream of on our own. Or you could build your own pathetic little kingdom here. And nothing you do will barely outlast your, your short life. 
And so live for the cause. Live for the mission that Jesus has given to us as his church. There's no better way to spend your time. There's no better way to spend your money, to invest your energy, to direct your prayers, or pour out your passions for than that. And as you do, then live with borrowed authority. God is building his kingdom. He is expanding his glory. He is preparing his eternal reign. He is saving souls. And he has been doing it for thousands of years. And his plan the entire time has been to do this through his church. Right? The people that he has called, the people that he has saved. God is, that is his plan A, and God has never have, has been in the business of having plan B's. He doesn't need backup plans, so he doesn't bother with them. Which means this. That what we've read this morning, what we've said out loud, what we're going to talk about the next several weeks, none of this is optional for us. Because there's not a moment in the Great Commission where Jesus presents us with a choice. He doesn't say, would you like to do this? He doesn't say, this is my suggestion for you. He doesn't say, this is one way your life could be meaningful. Maybe you should try it. He says, no, all authority is mine. Go do it. And so we need to be about this mission. We need to live for his kingdom. And the really cool thing is this, that when we join God in his mission, we join the God who has all the power and all the authority, and we can live like the early Christians did in Acts with that borrowed authority. In doing so, we're going to be who God had made us to be. In doing so, we're going to be used by God for things that we didn't think were possible. In doing so, we're going to be storing up treasures in heaven that can never be taken away. In doing so, we're going to be used by God to make an eternal life, eternal difference in the lives of others. We're going to see people in heaven that God used us to play a small part in them being there. Can you imagine what that's going to feel like? Doing so will leave a legacy that far outlasts our brief time on this earth, and we will achieve victories that career and money and sports and pleasure and worldly praise can't even come close to matching. Don't even compare. And so let's do it. Church, let's be about this mission. Let's be about the life that Jesus calls us to. Let's do it for Jesus, with Jesus, under his authority, not ever making it about us because it's not. If your life ended today and you stood before the Lord and he asked you this question, whose kingdom did you spend more time and more passion and more energy building? Mine or yours? What is the honest answer that you could say? All authority is his. We are commanded by the one with all authority to live for his mission. May he find us as his church responding with obedience. Let's pray. Father, I am incredibly grateful for the clarity of this mission. I'm incredibly grateful for the success, the success of it, that that small handful of individuals that you handed this mission to has carried out for 2,000 years, has crossed an ocean, has even met us here in Terre Haute, Indiana. We see, we're going to see today in the lives and examples of young people of your kingdom continuing to be built of your kingdom continually expand, of more souls and more people being reached because you haven't ever stopped building your kingdom. And Lord, the one with all authority has told us to be about this, has told us to live for this, has told us to observe this, to follow it and obey it. And so I pray that you would find in us a church of people willing to say yes to that. Lord, would you reveal to us which kingdom we've been building more, ours or yours? Would you reveal to us which, which area of, of, 
of our lives gets more passion and more energy and more intentionality and more prayer and more investment. Ours are yours. Would you bring people to our mind now that you've put in our lives for the sole purpose that we could be, that we could be witnesses of Jesus Christ to them? But God, I pray that you would move powerfully this morning, that you would use the witness of baptism, you would use the testimony of your word, you would use your spirit to bring us to a place of response. May those who have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, would today be their day of salvation, where they simply surrender and believe now. And for the rest of us, God, would we take a good, long, hard look at our job description and then take a good, long, hard look at our lives and ask ourselves, are we actually doing what we've been told to do? Are we actually doing what we've been called to do and equipped to do and prepared to do and commissioned to do? And where it's lacking, Lord, give us the resolve to live this out. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Before we have the distinct thrill and privilege of, of witnessing baptism this morning, we, we don't want to just move on to the next thing without giving you a chance to respond to the Lord. Maybe something he's been saying to you, a conviction he's laid on you, something he's leading you to do this morning. So we're going to give you a couple moments to just quiet yourself and still yourself before him and pray and connect with him. And this is your time with him. Please uh, take advantage of it and do not waste it.